0: god we are destroying what it took millions of years to nature to create by our using our technology and our you know to to grow food it's exactly there is a lot of parallels to what we are doing to our microbiome
1: hello and welcome back to the biomes podcast if you are listening in again thanks very much for returning If this is your first time listening in, uh, I'll give myself a little introduction again. My name is Dr. Rory Robertson, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in Queen Mary University of London. And over the last couple of months, I've been sitting down virtually with some of the best scientists in the world who are researching human microbiomes. And we've talked about everything from probiotics to the gut-brain axis to stool banks and everything in between. And what I really want to do is find out what are the latest scientific advances and latest exciting discoveries in the labs of the best microbiome researchers in the world so that all of us can learn about this uh, and find out what the next steps will be in the fields of microbiome medicine or nutrition or any other field related to microbes. And this week I have a special episode for World Microbiome Day 2020, which this year is on the 27th of June. And this is a brilliant initiative which is run out of APC Microbiome in University College Cork in Ireland. And the aim of World Microbiome Day is to educate everyone and to celebrate uh, the importance of microbiomes, not only in human health, but in environmental health uh, as well. And the theme of World Microbiome Day this year is diversity. Now we know that diversity is extremely important for the health of many microbiomes, especially in the human body most of the time, but also in environmental microbiomes as well. So we need to celebrate and preserve the diversity of microbiomes all around the world. So for this week's episode, I have an amazing guest, Professor Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello of Rutgers University. Professor Dominguez Bello is a pioneer in the field of the human microbiome and she has conducted some amazing studies around the world which have led to some fascinating scientific developments and insights into our understanding of the human microbiome. Her research in the microbiome is hugely diverse and so she is the perfect guest for this week's episode for World Microbiome Day and its theme of diversity. I began by discussing with Professor Dominguez Bello about some of her most well-known work, working with native Amerindian tribes in the Venezuelan Amazon jungle. These tribes were previously uncontacted by other humans and therefore could provide some fascinating insights into how humans lived before we were urbanized or westernized. In some of this work, Professor Dominguez Bello analyzed the gut microbiomes of these uncontacted Amazonian tribes and found that they contained a wide diversity of microbes which aren't typically seen in the westernized gut microbiomes, which are being destroyed by our westernized diets and lifestyles, hygiene practices, and overuse of antibiotics. I asked Professor Dominguez Bello what we can learn from these traditional people's microbiomes what the main lifestyle factors are that lead to our disappearing microbiomes in the Western world, and how traditional peoples can help strike a balance of fighting off infection whilst preserving a traditional microbiome.
0: So I was born in Venezuela, and I I was always interested in ecology. Uh, when I did biology, I did I started studying microbes. I was interested in understanding symbiosis between uh, microorganisms and the hosts uh, and I chose herbivores to to understand what was what were the benefits for both sides and what um, each one gave to each other and i studied i did, I did my thesis in in Scotland at Aberdeen University and uh, I studied uh, detoxification of plants uh, made Possible by microbes benefiting uh, ruminants. And I, I went back to Venezuela to do the field work uh, with uh, toxic plants that are not toxic there uh, because the ruminants have the, the graders. And I, I, I studied that problem. I, at the same time, I started studying nutrition and it, I, in, I got engaged in nutritional studies in Amerindians with a team of nutritionists and anthropologists and medical doctors. Uh, so that was from very early in, uh, when I was a student. And I never stopped being engaged uh, in those studies, mostly in the Venezuelan Amazonia. Um, we started studying parasites and nutritional status, but we quickly jumped to the microbiome. And uh, I started studying Helicobacter pylori in these populations, trying to understand the origins of Helicobacter and whether it was true that Helicobacters in the Western world were all European. Uh, because in that case, somebody suggested that the Spanish brought Helicobacters to the Americas and that the Amerindians didn't have uh, gastric H. pylori. So we did the studies and we we demonstrated that they do and that their strain is Asian consistent with bringing Helicobacters to, to the Americas in the stomachs of the ancestors, Mongolian right. Asian peoples that colonized the Americans uh, first. And from there, it was uh, the easy jump to the rest of the microbes uh, when we had um, access. So I left Venezuela uh, in 2003, I moved to Puerto Rico, um, you know, because of the revolution and the unrest, uh, you have to make choices, uh, and I, I favor being a scientist, <laughs> so I, I left, and, uh, but I continue with the team there, uh, these studies of uh, the microbiota of, of Amerindians. And I became very interested in what happens with transculturation and urbanization. And uh, we collaborated with Jeff Gordon in the first transcontinental study involving Africa and the Americas, North America and South America, uh, studying the microbiome across geography. And in that study, we already showed uh, how there is an association of losing diversity as you become more urban. So the United States had a much lower diversity than rural people in Africa or Amerindians in rural villages in South America. Mm -hmm. And from there, we continue studying other body sites, uh, skin, um, vaginal uh, microbiota, and uh, we, we had access to this um, extraordinary opportunity um, of uh, having samples from uncontacted or first-time contact um, Amerindians, people that have had no record of uh, having seen a non-Amerindian person before.
1: Right.
0: And uh, I didn't go to that expedition. I tried to, but it was canceled so many times <laughs> I ended up not, not being there. But the team took the samples and we published the paper uh, in 2015. Amazing. So since then, I've, I've been uh, studying gradients, you know. So, how, so the first big gradient we studied went from the jungles in the border between Peru and Ecuador with the Achuar people all the way to Manaus at the same latitude we studied microbes, not only from the humans, multiple body sites, but also from the environment. That was a huge gradient um, extreme, you know, in Manaus. Manaus is a modern city, uh, socially stratified. Uh, When you get to Manaus, you don't know where to sample because there are really at least two cities there cohabiting, the poor and the middle class. Uh, That doesn't happen in the other extreme. So it was very interesting to compare what changes in addition to microbes. And we went with a very interesting team of environmental engineers, architects. What do we change? Um, We did nutritional surveys, we did body composition. Uh, it, It really opened our eyes and having a multidisciplinary team like that was really very interesting. Uh, Then we decided to narrow the gradient because we realized that the changes on microbes happen very early in the process of urbanization. And currently we have very narrow uh, gradients. Uh, We are preparing the first paper on, you know, how microbes change in the very incipient stages of exposure to urban life
1: and what are the kind of leading factors so you say we've got this huge diversity in uncontacted tribes you've got really narrow diversity in you know someone from new york for example and you've shown that throughout this region in south america there's probably uh the more you become urbanized the kind of less diversity you have what are the the leading factors that in that urbanization is it antibiotic exposure is it diet is it uh, hygiene or, or do you know what that is?
0: So many factors become, uh, have a compounded effect uh, as you move towards uh, urbanization, including hygiene habits, including the of the houses. We, we start closing the houses, uh, reducing ventilation, um, designing spaces per, for use. So that's something that doesn't happen in the open hats, and that has a label in the microbes that in that live or you find in the bathroom or in a kitchen or in a bedroom. Um, so it, we change, uh, we change our environment, the environment where we live and we raise our kids as well. We change our diet. Uh, we change the genetics of the population because people become more mixed and more. Genetically diverse. So, but in terms of the microbes, uh, specifically antimicrobials are, per definition, a huge factor. And the first contact that any isolated people, a village, has with the Western world is typically through medicine.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, typically with the bad guys. The bad guys we call the garimperos, the miners the legal uh, people exploiting the the amazon um, more typically they are contacted by a team of doctors of representing the government or the state um, so the first exposure really is to urban people that are bringing medicines and they are, are providing antibiotics uh, anti-parasites vaccines, uh those are the most important medicine they need. I mean these these guys are survivors. So whoever you find there that is an adult is a survivor.
1: Right.
0: Mortality is very high because you don't have medicine. Uh, so it, that's also another factor. I mean these microbiotas are the microbiotas or, of survivor survivors.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. And the, the, the sole Uh, introduction to medicine, to antimicrobials uh, already may have an an impact. The impact starts there before the diet is changed, before the architecture is changed, before the lifestyle is changed. Mm. And then as they transculturate, then they changed their habits
1: everything else and it was interesting i remember you showed in those papers that there were even antimicrobial resistant genes present in the microbiomes of these people even before they were contacted how does that that come about you know we we have i suppose resistant to kind of certain natural antimicrobial compounds i suppose but how does that come about that they're you know they they have these genes already in their microbiomes
0: so their bacteria have their genes uh, and these genes we know that the production of antibiotic resistance genes is not only triggered by the very antibiotic they can resist that we know is triggered also by other stress factors we know for example in agriculture of copper increasing antibiotic resistance so the copper we use as an antifungal to uh, protect our crops, exert uh, antibiotic resistance uh, increase in the population of the soil. So there are many factors that may trigger these microbes in the guts of these people to to express uh, resistance to the compounds that we know as antibiotics so they they don 't live in an in a sterile world, of course, and the microbes are reacting to stresses. Um, they drink a lot of natural teas and herbs that may have stressors to the bacteria um, so they are there, and they are functional because the way they were discovered was by functional um, uh, expression of the of these genes, so but certainly we would expect that exposure to antibiotics will increase their mm. resistance uh, suppose, because it's the selective factor.
1: Of course, yeah, and that is the growing problem I suppose around the world is our increasing dependence on antibiotics. But I think that's interesting that you talk about these people are survivors because they are presumably mainly dying of infections, um, and and then then receiving antibiotics for the first time will presumably help them fight off infections and survive more. But we have that kind of paradox in the Western world that our over dependence on antibiotics has led to this other increase in more chronic diseases. And it's been associated with autoimmune diseases, allergies, asthma, arthritis, uh, and things like that. So where does that that balance lie for these communities? You know, they're, they're, they're fighting off infections, but they're kind of moving towards the path of immunopathologies. And yeah, wh- where does the balance lie? And how do, we, how do we meet that balance?
0: Exactly. That's the very reason why they are interested in collaborating in these studies. So they understand that getting industrialized or urbanized or modernized or technical, however you want to call it, It's about a trading of diseases. We see it and they understand it very well. They understand they are going to be more likely to be obese or diabetic or asthmatic uh, and all these chronic diseases. So that they they see that and they see that it's really a symbiosis to, to help us understand. It's not only for our own benefit, Uh, the westerners but for their benefit too because uh, and they you know they have a big dilemma that they have to solve how do they want to live where do they want how do they protect their culture uh, the good parts of their culture uh, without being marginated from interesting uh, events or technology that happens outside their villages Mm. and uh, i can tell you that the young people are explorers everywhere so the young people want to know you know they want to see the ocean they want Mm. to they want to see how 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 are our villages you know i I, we we try not to even bring photographs of new york for example because we think it's too shocking Mm. for them but guess what they are curious and Therefore, you know, if they ask, we show.
1: Yeah, um, of course.
0: And, you know, you can't stop that. And out of respect, you know, you show them what they ask. Yeah. Um, we try to be very um, passive in that regard because we, we don't want to exert transculturation in an active way.
1: Mm.
0: But the, the sole interaction... It's exerting that and it's changing them and it's changing us. And that's one of the reasons people who love to go to those places is because we learn so much mm. as well. So it, it's a, there is a lot of interest in, on both sides, on the Western air side and on the local people side. And they ask many questions right. and uh, we ask many questions. So it, it's a very respectful and interesting interaction. Uh, they will, at the end of the day, they will have to decide how do they change? How do they, you know, they have the dilemma. We want to remain here, but we want medicine here, but we don't want to pay the consequences. Mm. Uh, we want to get communicated. You know, we want radios. We want satellites, uh, internet communication to have telemedicine. And uh, But we are the guardians of the jungle. We, don't, we want our kids to stay. Uh, But what happens is that many of the kids leave. Mm. They send kids to study medicine and most likely those kids will never go back to the community. so It's a a problem. Um, I think there is a way that can be explored. Uh, I think in theory they could become technological staying in the jungle. But they need that connection with the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think technology can provide that.
1: Amazing. I suppose, yeah, it, it's, it's the way the whole world is going. It's kind of urbanization. And, and once these things happen, it's hard to, hard to stop it happening around the world. You can't stop people. You know, if people want to, to become urbanized, that's, that's important. But I think what's interesting is that it's a good proxy for studying how humans evolved. You know, these are some of the only communities in the world which are living presumably like humans originally lived back hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. So do you think now that our microbiomes have changed rapidly over the last, let's say, 100, 200 years, do you think that our bodies will evolve or our microbiomes will evolve to kind of tolerate that way of living? You know, will our our microbiomes evolve in that way so that we can tolerate antibiotics more, or tolerate these diets, or tolerate these urbanized lifestyles, or or does that kind of evolution in the microbiome take a much longer time?
0: So the evolution in the host takes a much longer time, and therefore that is a, a constraint uh, for the you know optimal uh, functioning of the microbiome. So you know the microbiome responds to. To selective factors and and changes, uh, but not necessarily uh, for the fitness of the host in the short term. And this is what we are experiencing now.
1: Mm.
0: So the the question of you know will we evolve to be you know modern with uh, probably big fingers because we type and a better uh, adaptation to be sitting, etc. That would take millions of years. Mm it's uh, it's too long. I mean, we may not even have a planet in a, in a million years, right. If we continue the way we go. Yeah. So I would forget about that. Uh, I just respect our current biology. I, I think the way to go is to acknowledge that we are highly technological, but we cannot control nature. And that COVID is, is a big reminder of that. Uh, we are a product of evolution, and our biology has to be respected. Yeah, as has to be the environment. I mean, if we want to be healthy, we need to keep a healthy environment, meaning respecting nature. Mm. We cannot control nature, and we will never control nature because yes. we are part of na- we are a product of nature. So, I think the most intelligent way is to understand better nature understand better our nature, our biology, and optimize it and respect it. Um, And I think we have the technology to restore a lot of what we have spoiled uh, already.
1: One of the dogmas in the microbiome field is that every microbe is either good or bad. But this isn't the case. A microbe's behaviour is very much context-dependent, and we need to view microbiomes as ecosystems. The best example of this is with a microbe known as Helicobacter pylori, or H. pylori, a spiral-shaped bacteria found in the human stomach. This was discovered in 1982 by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for its discovery, and for identifying its role in causing stomach ulcers and even gastric cancer in humans. Interestingly, H. pylori might actually be really important and beneficial in early life, and some evidence suggests that H. pylori can actually protect against asthma and allergies in children. Other examples include various parasites or worms that can cause infections in some people, but actually protect against diseases in other people and other contexts. I asked Professor Dominguez-Bello how we can strike a balance between protecting against infection, whilst at the same time preserving our traditional microbiomes.
0: So, my opinion is that we have been dominated too much by the medical world, who does not know much of ecology yet. So, not for, not for a few reasons, but for a lot of reasons. Pasteur and, and, you know, the early microbiologists saw the world as divided in uh, between the good microbes and the bad microbes. Now we have learned that it's, it is much more complex than that. And what we, what we call a parasite, we are already saying it's implicit that it's bad because it was discovered in the context of disease. The same happens with H. pylori. It was discovered as a as a parasite, as a, as a virulent uh, disease-causing agent. And it is. But the, the problem is, it's not as simple as that. It's not anything that has survived with humans through evolution has been selected for. And therefore, you can suspect that it may have a, a fitness value at some point in life. It happens that, nature for nature the most important window of life is until reproductive age that's when that's when fitness matter because if you're not going to reproduce you are a dead end so it doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter what happens after reproductive age and it is after reproductive age when for example the h pylori consequences happen so it is, um, and there are some papers showing that it might be good for kids to have H. pylori. There is some evidence that in kids, their immune response is more robust if they have H. H. pylori. So again, a parasite is not a parasite by definition. What is parasitic is the relation. And it, there could be a commensal that becomes a parasite. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that with a lot of examples in the microbiome, yeah. the candida in our mouth—it's not. I mean, I don't. I don't really believe in uh, commensals. I don't believe there are relations that are absolutely neutral, which is implicit in commensalism. You know, this yeah. is a, an entity that is living on another entity with doing without doing anything to that entity. I, I think that's a, that's really reflecting ignorance. What we call commensals is we don't know what they are doing. We don't know if anything good or bad they are doing. Uh, so that that term to me reflects, you know, lack of knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. So, we need to, uh, I suppose, yeah, redefine what is, a, as you're saying, a pathogen or a commensal, or the kind of more modernly used term is to I suppose, these days, where an organism is conditionally commensal or conditionally pathogenic, you know? And it's it's a change yeah. in that environment, maybe one of these factors of urbanization, which will or, push or it, age Or, or age. Or age, as you're saying, yeah, which will push that organism to, you know, causing disease or, or whatever. And, and we see that in the context of H. pylori, where, you know, as you've mentioned, H. pylori might even protect against things like asthma, but it can contribute to, um, to right. stomach ulcers as well. So it's all uh, there. If
0: we understand well that, then, then we can propose uh, more reasonable public health measurements. Yeah. For example, you know, if, if it doesn't do any good anymore after reproductive age, should at least in areas with high gastric cancer, people get rid of uh, mm-hmm. Helicobacter pylori? Um, things like that, but it it has to be based on, on, on a better knowledge.
1: Yeah, exactly. The other
0: big question is why do we have eukaryotic organisms in the, in the gut, what we call parasites? Is there any, in any way, are they contributing to our fitness? The other question is, is that fitness important in the Amazon, but not in the cities? Mm. We also have to consider that you know, maybe you don't need um, the uh, organisms that come back other organisms that we already have vaccines for, for example. Or So we have to understand very well what, what can we, what is the effect of our technology and medicines and vaccines uh, so that we understand the value of the function of one of these um, controversial microbes yeah it might be very important in the jungle but maybe not in our living conditions because we don't have the exposure uh, just as much as a jacket or you know covering is very important if you live in alaska because it's very cold but not in the amazon yeah so we need to better understand uh, a lot of things that we don't know uh, before you know being able to design rational Uh, public policies.
1: Another aspect of our westernized lifestyles that may be affecting our microbiomes from the very start of life is the overuse of c-section births. Of course c-section births are extremely important and have saved many mothers lives. However in some countries c-section births make up 80 or 90 percent of births. And of course, babies born by C-section have different gut microbiomes because they don't receive that initial coating of microbes that are present in the mother's birth canal. Professor Dominguez-Bello has pioneered some work known as vaginal seeding, which involves taking a swab from the mother's birth canal just before birth and swabbing it onto a baby born by C-section to try and recapitulate a normal birth and provide that baby who is born by C-section with some of the microbes it would have received if it was born naturally. I asked her about the science behind this concept and whether it could be used in the future as a preventative tool to restore microbiomes and help prevent chronic diseases.
0: So the rationale, again, was ecologic. And, and that's why, you know, at the beginning, especially, some doctors were very uh, scandalized and in dismay that we were giving newborns bacteria. So we we know that the earlier you impact the microbiome, the lo- the more the stronger the consequences are later in life and there is a, plenty of evidence in animal models that show that and we know you know through the farmers farmers discovered that giving antibiotics from early life it doesn't work if you give it to the adult it it works only during growth so the earlier you give the low dose antibiotics the more the better the effect for the farmer, the farmer, the growth, the growth of the animal allows the farmer to sell it earlier because it's by it's not by age but by weight. Uh, the animals they f- deposit more fat, so we know that perturbing the microbiome uh, very early in life has huge consequences for the um, physiology of the animal, and we we use that uh, in uh, in farms. Um, fortunately that practice has been banned in america two years ago in europe 22 years ago um because it it has a lot of bad consequences that's an example of the kind of things we do without you know knowing well what are the collateral damage um in the case of the c-sections c-sections save lives and and we have witnessed the dramatic situation of uh, mothers in the amazon where you know the mom died or the baby dies in about 1 of 10 births that's dramatic that you know a family loses a baby or a mom 1 in 10 times and that that's what happened in the old days when c sections didn't exist we we happen to be a species that are, are it's very hard for us to give birth for evolutionary reasons like always right uh, and that's another chapter but the truth is we are not great um, giving birth so c-sections have become really important in saving lives and we we don't respect nature's selection we want to save everybody and 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 i think that's ethically correct but then we have to deal with nature right uh because we, you know we I'm not supposed to be here at my age, right? That evolutionary that never happened, but it's happening. And that's good. <laughs> I'm happy about that. So we, we have to cheat nature, um, but we have to know what we are doing because nature responds back, right? Uh, so what has happened with this section is interesting. You know, There is a lot of fear and uncertainty and pain related to birthing. And that has led, that and the the overconfidence on the medical system and on the doctors has led this phenomenon that everybody kinds of understand that putting births in the hands of doctors is safer. And everybody feels safer. And mothers suffer less because the pain, you know, there is the surgery is done under anesthesia. The reality shows when you study the phenomenon, there are, in reality, there are more risks that are uh, caused by unnecessary c-sections than benefits. Mm. But the pain is there. And pain, I think the main driver really is pain. If we knew, if we had enough research to show us how to birth vaginally, normally, with, without pain or with less pain, that would be the people's choice. Mm. There is not enough research. We cut corners, and that, that's history of humans as well. We cut corners. If C-sections exist, let's go to have a C-section. And that, this is Brazil and the rest of South America. But in the cities of South America, C-sections rate uh, sometimes over past 90%. Mm-hmm. It's the new way of giving birth. You don't, nobody waits for a labor. Uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I don't. I haven't read enough papers on the sociology of it or anthropology of it. It's so interesting. It has happened very fast. Um, so my own C-section was like that. My own C-section was my doctor convincing me that it was safer for the baby to have her be a C-section. Now I know that I had an unnecessary C-section mm. too late. <laughs> um, so... C-sections uh, bypass the, exposure, the natural exposure of babies in addition to being early births because it's usually done one or two weeks before the due date. So it's early birth, lack of labor, bypassing the birth canal exposure and the perineal exposure and presence of antibiotics. So it's a huge compounded effect that does affect transmission and colonizations of the first microbes in the babies. And why is that important? Because the first microbes in babies are modulating, instructing the program of the immune system and metabolic system is the most important window that will determine your future health. So, I was interested in answering the question. You know, if we have C-sections that are not related to these to disease conditions in the mother, uh, but mostly to repeated C-sections. You know, if you have if you have more than two C-section C-sections, you, you are not recommended to give birth vaginally. Uh, malposition presentation. You know. Bad luck, the baby's upside down, nobody manipulates anymore, they do a c-section. So if we if we took those babies that were supposed to be born vaginally and we restore the exposure, at least the microbial exposure, would we normalize the microbiome? We did that. Uh, It took took a while, the first time to get the IRB, but then they understood that the intervention is really the C-section. So, if you want to restore, what can you restore? Can you restore label labor? Unlikely. Can you restore? You know, you are missing all the um, roller coaster hormonal changes. To restore that may be difficult, not impossible, but in reality, you want to restore everything you can to normalize the experience, uh, because we assume that. It, it is important. Uh, so, we, norm, we propose to normalize microbes, it, which is a very simple uh, procedure. And we did publish the pilot study. We are now in revision with the big study. And, and basically, the, the study shows us uh, in the pilot that you can restore partially the microbes that are normal in babies that remain abnormal in C-section born even after a year. So I think that's very clear. It was controversial, um, you know, people still even suggested that there were people, they get babies were seated in utero. That has been discarded by evidence. Nobody has shown that those microbes are alive and growing in populations and communities inside the fetus. So, and and if you look at nature, uh, there has—it's not random—the fact that the canal for birth is always next to the canal for excretion, fecal excretion, in all vertebrates. Mm-hmm. So there is selection for that. We 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 don't have babies through the umbilicus, which would make sense because that's the connection. Why don't we open the umbilicus and? give birth to our babies there. In every animal, it's the two orifices, the two canals are next to each other, which uh, suggests that it might be because microbes are better transmitted, uh, because intestinal microbes are very important. So we think that that's an evidence um, that favors that uh, hypothesis. And uh, the big study that is needed now, so if we say, okay, we can partially normalize um, the microbiota of these babies, breastfeeding is very important to sustain because when you provide microbes, you also have to provide the normal substrates that Mm -hmm. maintain that uh, community. Mm -hmm. Uh, So breast milk is extremely important. But the big question that people ask, and we don't know the answer yet, is are we protecting those kids against the increased risk of asthma, diabetes, type one diabetes, obesity, celiac disease, allergies, um, that are associated with C-section. For that, we need a randomized clinical clinical trial. And I, I know there are four or five ongoing long-term clinical trials i'm sure they are all stopped because of covid like ours so i'm Mm -hmm. evolving one and these are all randomized so all kids born by c-section with a uh, indication from healthy mothers um, are randomized into a sham or the real inoculum and then those babies are followed Uh, for three four five years yeah that kind of studies will really answer is that important for health
1: it's clear that our westernized lifestyles which are destroying the diversity of our traditional microbiomes has quite similar parallels to the way that we are destroying the diversity of animals plants and other species in our environments Some scientists a few years ago realised that this was happening and that something must be done to stop it. And they created what is known as the Seed Vault. The Seed Vault is a big vault that is built into the permafrost of northern Norway in a place called Svalbard. And inside this vault contains collections of all the seeds known in the world. So that in the case of the world ending or being thoroughly destroyed due to climate change or COVID or nuclear war, we would still have access to all these different crops and food systems and other plants necessary to sustain life on Earth. Professor Dominguez-Bello saw this idea and decided something similar needed to be done for our human microbiomes. So she has created an initiative known as the Microbiota Vault, And this would parallel the seed vault, whereby we would stock and store all of the microbes that are known to be associated with humans, especially those associated with traditional peoples, such as those in the Amerindians in the Amazon jungle. I asked her about this fascinating initiative and what needs to be done to actually create this microbiota vault and sustain our healthy microbes into the future.
0: Yeah, so... You know, in the context of my personal history and, you know, being from Venezuela, a country that has had a very destructive revolution, uh, having to move out, I moved to Puerto Rico where every year there is hurricane season and we had to protect the collections every year. Uh, Fortunately, in Puerto Rico, everybody's preparing for the hurricane seasons at, at this time of the year. Then I moved to New York after nine years in Puerto Rico, uh, thinking, "Well, now the collection will be safer because we don't have the hurricanes here." But guess what? A month after I moved to NYU, Hurricane Sandy hit us, like no hurricane before in my life in Puerto Rico. (laughs) So Sandy closed our labs for eleven months, and we literally had to go to the labs with headlamp lights. To save the collections uh, downstairs, six floors, into trucks that had freezers. Uh, I saved my entire collection. I was luckier than other people. But in the context of that, you are finding that we are losing diversity, right? And we don't know what functions that lost diversity were exerting. And we know that at the same time, there is a correlation with increasing in, uh, diseases that underlying inflammation. So all that put together and I discovered the seed vault. And then I realized it, it is exactly a parallel what we have done to the seeds and to the plants of the world with agriculture. We have destroyed diversity, natural diversity to make monocultures because, because there is a market to sell them, not, not only for the local uh, use and consumption, but really for the world. So vast t- territories have been deforestated uh, um, and replaced by monocultures, destroying the diversity. Uh, the efforts of Cary Fowler uh, in the Seed Vault and of people before him, like Babilov realizing, God, we are destroying what it took millions of years to nature to create by our using our technology and our you know to to grow food, it's exactly there is a lot of parallels to what we are doing to our microbiome uh, and to the environmental microbes. By the way, it's it's not only to our human-evolved microbes, but also animal-evolved microbes and environmental microbes. So I realized you know we sh- should be saving our collections we should get together and have a way to have a backup for our collections so that's where my my first uh, idea was to approach in 2017 i approached the people from the crop trust of you know who is a sustaining the seed crop because the idea is very parallel our industrialization our modernization our urbanization is destroying natural diversity that remains in pockets of uh, developing countries of the poorest countries in the world so the poorest countries are the ones that still have traditional peoples that have this wealth that we have lost wealth of diversity of plants and seeds wealth of diversity of the human microbiome. So we started assembling a team um, of scientists at the beginning, uh, or yeah, the team is still collaborators and pioneers are are mostly scientists, uh, people from foundations that work on the human microbiome. And we started um, building, constructing the vision of having a vault where the local collections that are extremely important. So everybody should be, everybody, uh, every country that has traditional peoples should be harvesting, collecting, and um, keeping that biodiversity before they don't have any more the traditional people. Everybody's urbanizing very fast. Year after year, you see the changes. Uh, In the Amazon, unfortunately, oil was discovered. um, And the bad part of that, it it may be good economically for the country, but the bad part of that is it's uh, really putting in danger traditional cultures, traditional languages, traditional ways of life, traditional microbiomes uh, Mm. that are high diversity. And it, it is those countries who should be preserving that biodiversity and and preserving that culture etc so but can we get together the microbiologists of the world and help so we have we have the um, uh, the technology we have the expertise we have the techniques that we can standardize <clears throat> they have the wealth uh, can we get together so the idea the vision is uh, network of local collections kept and maintained locally that can have a backup in a place that is is, um, well prepared for long-term preservation. For example, it's cold. For example, it's easy to provide liquid nitrogen to maintain the much lower temperatures than the seeds need to be preserved. The seeds have the advantage that they they can keep at minus 30, which is um, the normal temperature in the North Pole. Microbes need lower temperatures. So we need to devise a way to to have a system that is uh, pretty much autonomous, ideally, in an isolated place, ideally belonging to a country that is rich and politically neutral and peaceful. So we uh, logically we thought of Scandinavian countries, uh, Switzerland, Norway. Norway has the collection of the seeds, and uh, and then you know we commissioned a feasibility study supported by many universities and foundations uh, to to determine whether that is feasible.
1: Wow. So what is the stage? At? There uh, presumably there, there isn't a. A kind of international storage just yet but that is the the goal when do you see this happening you know have we started i guess you already have collections from venezuela and ideally they'd be kept in in country um but what is the kind of timeline when would you like to see this happen or are we on a is there kind of a ticking time bomb before we uh before we lose all this diversity
0: so there are some local collections, mostly linked to research like mine, and my collection is uh, duplicated in Venezuela. Uh, I don't know the conditions now of that collection there, but, um, but we, we want to encourage more local collections to be formed and, and train people on the microbiome sciences um, so that they can uh, have their own collections.
1: And and how do you view that international one being used in the future? I mean, we're, you know, presumably, you know, antimicrobial resistance, for example, is a big, a big worry. Um, How will, say, a country like the U.S. says, right, we want more diversity. Can we have some of the Venezuelan microbes, please, for our entire population? Or in what circumstances could someone use it uh, and and why? So,
0: I mean, in principle, what... What is feasible, according to the study, is that the, the, the owner of the collection is the depositor. That solves a lot of legal issues. So if the United States wants Indian microbes, they will have to go to the local collections uh, and ask for it. Right. Only the depositor, can. it's like a bank. In, in a bank, you you are the only one who have access to the money you deposited. So it's going to function Uh, in that way so that there are no legal issues or if a company wants to develop a probiotic they will have to go to the local collections which are the ones open the idea of the vault is that it's a it's a very long-term backup collection to be hopefully to be moved by the depositor only in extreme conditions
1: okay and presumably this isn't just bacteria you're talking about. You're storing kind of whole samples because these environmental samples, whether they're human biological samples or animal samples or soil samples, let's say, they don't just contain you know, bacteria. They contain viruses. They contain various metabolites, which I suppose in the long-term future could be, could be tapped into. Uh, is that how you're approaching it or are you planning to culture some of the um, microorganisms that are in those samples as well?
0: So, people in their local collections and the local labs are doing the research so if I think we we need this the entire specimen because it contains the biodiversity we don't even know how to culture right uh so by the time we know we if we don't preserve it we will have lost it so if it if i on the other hand um isolate microbes and have them in pure culture i could also deposit them in addition to the specimen that contains the complex community Uh, the other important thing for the vault is to have the metadata updated so if i deposited a, a, a sample in the microbiota vault or the venezuelan team did and we know much more now and we are publishing a paper where we did metagenomics we should tell the vault so the vault should keep a metadata that is growing with the knowledge about the samples it holds and that knowledge should be open to the public Uh, that's an issue we have to we have to see how to uh, approach it. it it will have to need um it will have to have the permission of the depositor but the idea is to to make the collection Close, as close as possible, not to be moved uh, because there are the local collections, but to make the knowledge as open as possible. And to have certainly from published work, we can harvest that and, and uh, uh, but ideally even people providing you know their the knowledge that they have unveiled from their samples, that that's also very important. So the idea is to have a, a vault that holds complex samples as well as isolates and the knowledge that uh, has been unveiled on these uh, samples and microbes.